0: Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. Good evening. This is James Napolitano, the International Vice President of the National League of Justice Security Professionals, where members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is one 625 8610 Please check out Life on Record. A gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. One would play out as a painful community melodrama pitting neighbor against neighbor. One would become a prized exceptional victory. All were significant in revealing labor's disorientation before large baleful market forces. What was remarkable, however was that they gave evidence of a pulse, a sigh, that at some elemental level labor retained its healthy insurgent heart and a capacity for sacrifice and principle. Hormel Foods, famous for its spam, Wrangler, sausages, and Dindy Moore beef stew, was one of the country's best-known manufacturer of supermarket canned meats. Its plant in the small Minnesota city of Austin started as a family business in 1981, had by 1984 come to employ 1,600 men and women. Other for slaughtering and manufacturing facilities opened elsewhere in the upper Midwest. The firm built a new 100 million factory in Austin in the early 1980s, which operating at full capacity slaughtered 2 million hogs each year and produced 440 cans of spam per minute. By 1985, Hormel provided a livelihood, directly or indirectly, for a quarter of the town's 23,000 inhabitants. The founder, George A. Hormel, and his son, Jay, had worked to make the company a trusted community institution. It was a source of pride that the company's workers, foremen, executives, and their families sat side-by-side at church, suppers, and PTA meetings, watched their sons play little league baseball together and exchanged greetings at the gas pump. Workers noticed a change in the feel of the company after opening the new plant. A corporate professional leadership filled the top positions, and a stricter worker environment took hold with greater demands on efficiency and production. The company began paying more attention to the bottom line. In 1985, it announced it would seek concessions from the Austin-based local P-9 of the United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, by a reduction of the average wage at the plant from $10.69 per hour down to $8.25. Management claimed it was necessary to stay competitive with other regional meat packing plants that were non-union and paid their employees as little as $6 an hour. Local P-9 was not happy as it was rumored that Hormel's profits were still solid. The talks between Hormel and the UFCW nationally failed. The local hired a controversial New York labor consultant, Ray Rogers, who was known to play by his own rules. He urged a strategy called the Corporate Campaign, which was designed to unnerve employers by exposing their corporate profile, things such as their finances and anything potentially humiliating about their partnership, investments, or stockholders. In 1969, the United Mine Workers' leader, Joseph Jock Jablonski, his wife and daughter were murdered on the orders of Miner's President Anthony Tuftoni Boyle. Rogers had helped Union reformer Arnold Miller and others within the UMW to expel Boyle, who with three other men went to prison for their part in the crime. He was also in the J.P. and Stevens Company of North Carolina textile workers campaign that was made famous by the popular 1979 Hollywood film Norma Ray starring Sally Fields. The Hormel issue turned bad as neighbors sided with neighbor against neighbor, part of the influence of Rogers. As it drew media attention, the National warned the local it might resist its members out of a job. Prayed the media attention might make them lose sight of the goal, it did not appear so when Hormel offered to a smaller wage reduction to $10 per hour, an offer many outsiders felt was reasonable. Refusing the national UFCW advice, the local members rejected the offer by a vote of 775 to 540. After the strike began on August 17, 1985, Management kept the plant running at minimal production levels through the fall using supervisory staff. In January 1986, Hermel announced it would reopen at full production, offering any returning employees $10 an hour and new hires $8 an hour. This created friction among the town's residents. Some were extremely loyal to the local while a large number were eager for work. About 2,000 men and women applied for the $8-an-hour jobs. At the gates, infuriated strikers challenged their replacement workers, many whom they recognized as friends, neighbors, and even relatives. Eventually, the strikers blocked the gates with their cars, forcing Hormel to shut down and leading Minnesota Governor Rudy Perpetsch to dispatch the National Guard. The strikers intensified their opposition, exhibiting a degree of militancy reminiscent of the United Auto Workers of 1937. They had organized food drives, pulled child care duties, shared meals, and even the free exchange of services. Some saying the locals' position was hopeless and returned to work. Those remaining loyal still wondered if it was sensible to keep striking, if it was unwinnable. The Austin City Council weighed in, arguing P-9 to end the strike before the town is destroyed. Rogers and the local received support from many activists, including Jesse Jackson. The mainstream labor movement concurred with the UFCW that continuing the strike would be a mistake. P-9 began demonstrations and encouraging worker stoppages at other Hormel facilities in the Midwest, and Rogers had demonstrations in Austin at First Bank which he had decided was the real power structure behind Hormel, urging workers to close their accounts. UFCW President William Wynn, meanwhile, advised his union workers at Hormel sites across the country not to become innocent victims of local P-9's extremist actions. The relationship between the Austin local and its national became so strained it began to appear The UFCW likely shared Hormel's interest in crushing the strike. Hormel filed charges against P-9 with the NLRB and obtained an injunction against picketing outside the Austin plant. It was an alleged violation of this injunction that led to the arrest of 27 individuals, including Ray Rogers. The UFCW, its own credibility on the line, eventually placed local P-9 into receivership and ceased making strike payments of between $40 to $65 per week to each worker. Now, at least formally in charge of the local, it gave one final directive to P-9 to suspend the strike, which was ignored, at which point the UFCW fired both Guyette and Rogers. The strike thus officially ended with the remaining 900 strikers out of their jobs, their positions having been filled by replacements. Caterpillar, located in Peoria, Illinois, was the largest manufacturer of construction equipment. Their arrival in 1950 was a boom economically to the area. In the late 1980s, their profits were in decline, and by 1991, it had sliced its workforce, leaving only 12,000 workers down from 20,000 in 1980. In 1990, Don Fitz, a veteran salesman, became the CEO. Fitz had spent many years selling for Caterpillar in Japan, and his global perspective and experience were expected to be a key asset in keeping the firm in the race with Komatsu, a Japanese competitor. In 1991, they sought out a new contract with its workers, who were represented by United Auto Workers. The company sought to stop paying guards and janitors the $17 an hour wage it paid more skilled workers. It also sought out a lower pay tier of 8.50 an hour for new hires. The new contract covered a longer term of existence with no pay increase to unskilled workers, only a cost of living adjustments, and failed to renew a guarantee the company had with the United Auto Workers to keep a minimum number of workers on salary. This was a departure from the traditional negotiation form that the UAW preferred called pattern bargaining. A union emulates a contract by workers at a similar enterprise, in this case, and Company, another large Midwestern farm implement manufacturer. Pattern bargaining is an outdated concept that makes no sense in a global economy, said Gerald Flaherty, a Caterpillar VIP. We need an agreement that makes sense for our employees and enables Caterpillar to continue providing high-quality jobs here in the United States. We also need an agreement that will allow us to sell products against non-United States competitors around the world. But the UAWs wanted to keep pattern bargaining as a favored method for upcoming negotiations with the big three automakers, which employed 400,000 United Auto Workers members. The talks, as could be expected, went nowhere. When UAW members walked off at some Caterpillar plants, the firm blocked out employees at several others. Efforts to restart negotiations failed, and in April 1992, the company told members they had a week to return to work or lose their jobs, as it had already begun to advertise for new hires. This threat was more serious at Caterpillar than at other employees as many Caterpillar workers were in their 40s and their chances of finding comparable employment in a depressed economy were slim. This also meant that the company would have no problem finding people eager to apply for any replacement jobs. The UAW, seeing no movement towards negotiations, ended the strike. In some ways, this action was worse than the Reagan-PATCO a decade earlier as Caterpillar was a regional employer with deep roots in the community and it was disturbing about its willingness to use scabs to oust the union. UAW President Owen Bieber decrying the idea that Caterpillar had no choice in the matter. I'm getting a little sick of hearing the word global. Bieber was correct that Caterpillar saw the use of replacements less as a temporary fix and more as part of a long-term adoption. That year, the company had joined 200 other companies to create the alliance to keep Americans working whose first order of business was to defeat a bill working its way through Congress. That would reverse the NLRB's ruling on harder equipment and ban the use of replacement workers in a lockout. This 1986 ruling allowed an employer to lock out strikers and hire replacements in order to keep their business running if there was no evidence of anti-union motivation. Critics charged that such a right given to employers inherently defied workers' rights since it rendered useless the threat of a strike. Early in Bill Clinton's first term, advocates of the bill tried again. Edward Kennedy told his colleagues that most industrialized countries did not allow the hiring of replacement workers and representatives. Major Owens of Brooklyn defended the bill as essential to labor because if you can be replaced, you don't have the right to strike. The bill passed in the House but failed in the Senate, not getting past the Republicans' 60 vote filibuster. In the spring of 1992, the United Auto Workers Workers returned to work at Caterpillar, but they were disruptive, doing work slowdowns, holding union meetings in company lunch rooms, demonstrating outside Caterpillar's offices and wearing anti-corporation buttons and t-shirts. The company fought back with tightened discipline and selected firings. In November 1993, a three-day walkout was staged. In June 1994, a major strike occurred as the UAW had amassed a large strike fund. The cat was ready. The company arranged to stay fully operational using temporary employees. The strike lingered half-heartedly for 18 months. UAW members crossed picket lines and returned to work or quit the Union entirely. By December 1995, the UAW had no option but to admit defeat. In 1998, the labor movement regained some ground and got a much-needed moral boost as the result of a 1997 Teamsters strike at United Parcel Services. UPS, the victory was not celebrated because it triumphed over a badly behaving corporation. UPS had a reputation for good relations with labor, but because the union won over the issue of contingent or two-tier employment, the employer cuts costs relying on temporary and part-time employees. UPS was also attempting to change the structure of the employee's pension plan, but staging a strike for any reason had become a risky strategy and rare. Work stoppages declined in America from 3,111 in 1977 to only 385 by 1995, even as wages lost 15% of their value. Based in Atlanta, UPS was the nation's largest shipping company with 302,000 American employees at 2,400 sites and annual earnings of $1.1 billion. As many as 80% of the company's new hires were part-time, which allowed UPS to deny them full benefits and pay them $9 an hour in contrast to the $20 it paid full-timers. UPS said it had to stay competitive. Federal Express had a lower-paid workforce, union-free except for its pilots. But also because the workday schedule was sporadic with intense periods of loading and sorting followed by lulls in which few, if any, workers were needed. But the Teamsters countered with the fact that workers were kept at part-time for years without promotion and that as many as 10,000 part-timers actually worked full-time hours, but received the lower part-time rate. UPS offered to move 800 part-time workers to full-time over four years. The union countered with all 10,000 in four years. No deal was reached, and the union struck on August 4. The 2,000 pilots of UPS agreed to honor the strike, and 185,000 Teamsters walked off the job. The company went to the media with a scandal involving Teamster President Ron Carey, who faced charges that he had illegally used union funds as campaign contributions in his recent narrow election over James Hopper Jr., Polls showed the public supported the strikers by a margin of 55% to 27% and that people saw downsizing and contingent employees as a nationwide problem. By 1997, contingent work had become so ambiguous. Virtually everyone knew a friend or family member trapped in the two-tier system as temporary or part-time workers working at reduced pay with marginal perks, and non-existent health coverage. The level of public empathy for the UPS walkout became news in the 1981 Paco strike. 51% of Americans had backed President Reagan and only 40% the traffic controllers. There was also by 1997 a strong perception that management is less fair and less loyal to workers than it used to be. The UPS workers benefited from the solidarity shown by the company's pilots and the Teamsters had the support of the labor movement, which perceived the strike as an important test of whether two-tier downsizing could be curbed. The AFL-CIO even came forward to offer resources for the Teamsters' strike fund. Such cooperation was a reflection of... The shake-up at the AFL-CIO in 1995, the first major reorientation of the 14 million member organization since its creation 40 years earlier. The Teamsters called on their friends around the world. UPS was dominant in the shipping industry in America. It was still in an expansion mode in Europe. So as union and UPS representatives sat across the bargaining table from each other, in America, the European unions, as part of what was called UPS World Action Day, staged brief demonstrations or work stoppages. UPS understood that failure to resolve the Teamster strike on terms acceptable to workers might bring global consequences, with the forces of big labor, public opinions, and coordinated sympathy strikes breaking out as far away as orly airport in paris ups had its back to the wall its size worked against it in that even with the efforts of its competitors fedex and the united states postal service they could not pick up the slack they came under pressure from its customers especially retailers and catalog companies to sell president clinton and his labor secretary, Alexis Herman, also pitched in keeping the two parties at the bargaining table despite the sluggish pace of the talks and at one point rejecting out of hand UPS's request for a court injunction. Fifteen days into the walkout began UPS capitulated agreeing to shift 10,000 part-time workers to full-time within five years, and raised part-time salaries 37% during that period. Full-timers by 15%. They agreed to keep the present pension arrangements. And to wrap this one up. Hello, this is Charlie Parker, treasurer of the NLGSP. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, and our motto is, the member is first. Thank you.